0: Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 10, as we read verses 17 through 27. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? (coughs) Hear now the word of God. Now, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the, tribes of Benjamin. the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, they could, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has, been, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel took the people, the rights, told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, would you give us the grace to see ourselves and our own hearts in the lives and actions of the people of Israel tonight. Help us not to stand at a distance and study them as though this has nothing to do with us. Let us see in Israel the idols of our own hearts and the ways that we try to solve our own problems apart from you. Help us to see, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been thinking lately about the two kinds of hope that we sort of live with. One is deep hope and the other is shallow hope. Um, And maybe I can explain what the difference is. Deep hope versus shallow hope. Um, It's the difference between hope that is a cliche, uh, hope that doesn't have much to it, and and hope that is strong. And hope that is, is deep and runs way down with its roots, dug deep so that you know it's true. And it isn't just an easy, quick answer. I think, if, imagine this, you're, you're by the bedside of a loved one who's in the hospital. And, and for many of you, you don't have to imagine this. You've, you've been through it, this year even. Um, you've lived it. And imagine that, that I, as your, your pastor, received that call, that you're at the hospital. And, and so I, I hurry over, hopefully, if I'm doing my job. And... I show up at the hospital and I I come next to your bedside and I say, turn that frown upside down. Or maybe I say, put on a happy face. Or, you know, it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile. Uh, Every cloud has a silver lining. I imagine... That after I left there, you would say, good grief, what is going on with that guy? <laughs> what would I be doing if that was how I approached your suffering? I think I would be settling for the shallow encouragement, the very shallow encouragement. Right? And what does the situation call for? The situation calls for deep encouragement, deep hope. The sort of things that you need to hear and you need to know are true, and that aren't going to just flitter away the moment I step out the door. Um, see, imagine the same situation, and and instead of the other scenario, imagine that I came by the bedside of your loved one. And you're there, and I told you something different, right? Our God rules over the heavens and the earth. He made everything that exists. He even made this illness. He is good and he is wise and he loves you and he only does what is right. And I don't know what God is doing right now, but I do know that he's going to glorify himself in your life. And I know he's going to use this situation to shape you and grow you. Now, what am I doing there? Hopefully giving the sort of deep hope that we need in those kind of situations. Deep hope versus shallow hope. Deep hope is harder to find. It takes more work. You have to to dig deep. You have to know the character of God. Shallow hope is as easy as memorizing something from a calendar. But when we're weary, I think sometimes we find ourselves settling for shallow hope. And maybe we do that even in our own lives. The shallower answer is the easier answer but there 's nothing nourishing about it. I think I can relate to this instinct to have a, to sort of settle for the easy answer. Um, I have had evenings where I came home late and a little later than I should have, and maybe I get home and what do I do? I go to the refrigerator and I open the door. And I settle for the worst possible idea that I could ever have. You know, I warm up up some pizza at 9 or or 10 o'clock at night or make a gigantic bowl of life cereal. Um, I've been known to do that before. I haven't been doing it lately, thankfully. I've had some restraint lately. But uh, I've been known to take a mixing bowl and fill it all the way up with life cereal and get a giant stirring spoon and go to town on it. Um, Or at least I want to. Even now it sounds nice. Um, but you know what are you doing there you 've got a problem and it 's a very real legitimate problem right i 'm hungry. and yet, if you go that route, if you go the life cereal route, if you go the frozen pizza route, what are you doing you 're settling for the fast Easy solution. You have this real problem that needs to be solved. You have a nutrient deficiency that you need to take care of, and yet you settle for the worst possible solution to your problem. And of course, what happens? You pay the price. Uh, I remember an episode of The Cosby Show, back when you could talk about Bill Cosby in a nice way. Uh, And I remember he ate a hoagie before bed, and the whole episode was his terrible night, his terrible nightmares he was having because he ate that hoagie right before bed. Um, When we settle for the microwave solution, when we settle for the easy answer instead of the healthy or the right answer, we end up paying the price for it in one way or another. Saul represents the microwave solution to a very real problem. Saul represents the quick and easy answer to a very real, very serious problem for for Israel. And I want to give you a spoiler right up front. This is a microwave solution that leaves Israel malnourished and hurting. Israel is surrounded on every side by a God who is in the deep hope business. He is constantly, their entire existence, what has he done? He has fortified them with all the good that he's done. All the glory that surrounds him. And he's continually giving them more and more reasons to trust him. And yet tonight he tells Israel just what they've done. He lets them know that they have rejected him. And in so doing, they're rejecting the deep hope that God gives. And so because of that, as as a good father, he has to let their bad choices play themselves out. You know, you want a quick, easy, shallow hope. That's the sort of hope that a king like Saul can give. And so he lets them experience it. He lets them have it. This is the best that you can make for yourself. I'm going to let you live through it now and see what that's like. And so Samuel, on behalf of of God, undertakes three tasks tonight. He rebukes the people. He reveals Saul. And the law is upheld. The People are rebuked. Saul is revealed, and the law is upheld. See, here's what I want you to notice. God loves Israel, and he loves us so much, but he loves Israel so much that even though they think they don't want God in his ways, he is bound and determined to show them what matters most and where the real hope is found. And it isn't found in a fast food microwave, short-term, easy solution. It's found in making God their king. And so let's see how he sets the stage for them to learn that painful lesson tonight. First, the people are rebuked in verses 17 to 19. And in verse 17, Samuel calls Israel together and he gives them a speech. And the speech is a rebuke. It's not a a comforting speech, really. It's a correction. And when he talks to the people, he makes very clear to them that there are serious problems with the heart of Israel. And with the reason why they're asking for a king like all the nations. Uh, think about what's happened for a moment. God has been their king ever since he brought them out of Egypt. He has, he has guided them. He has guarded them. He's protected and provided for them. He has fed them. He's clothed them. He's watered them. He took care of Israel all the way. And, and he did tell them, he said, you can have a king but he needs to be different from the other nations. He needs to love me. He needs to love my law. He needs to fill his mind and his heart with my word. He needs to have his face in the scriptures continually. Um, And yet in Israel, in chapter 8, declared, we want him to be like all the other nations. So they've rejected the stipulations God puts on the kind of king that they're supposed to have. And and we've been introduced to Saul. We've seen that he's not exactly what we would call a man after God's own heart. He doesn't show up obviously, but we see the signs already. We see the foreshadowing of what Saul is going to show himself to be later. He doesn't seem up to the task of shepherding for Israel. I mean, he can barely shepherd a flock of donkeys at this point. And yet we also saw that God can work through even a flawed man like, Sam, like Saul um, there he goes prophesying with the, when the Spirit rushes upon him in the last section. But the rebuke that, that Samuel gives Israel has two parts to it. And the first is this, he reminds them what God has done. So the rebuke begins in a positive way. This is God. This is who he is. This is what he's done. He lays out for them the deep things of God, who God is, how he's cared for them, why they can trust him, why they should trust him. And the way he has, over the last 500 years or more, shown himself to be a good king to them. He's making the case that they have misjudged their God. He says, I brought up Israel Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hands of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And so he reminds them, he says, not only did I rescue you from the trickiest, deepest trouble that a nation could ever be in. Not only did I miraculously care for you, but then when you got here, I protected you even more, even though you had trouble on every side. It's like God is saying, have I not been your king and your God all these years? Have I ever stopped being your king? He's demonstrated his faithfulness time and time again. He's continually put his love and care into practice, Do they really think that now, after all of that, he's going to just drop them and forget about them? Well, the answer is yes, they, they do think that. And that's the second part of God's rebuke, because he first reminds them of what he's done, but then he reminds them of what they have done. So the rebuke has a second part. The first part is, I'm God, I'm trustworthy, I've taken care of you, you have no reason to reject me. And then he says, but you rejected me. What have they done? Well, this is the way Samuel puts it. He says, today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities. You've rejected God. And it makes no sense to reject God. I mean, If you really think about it, the God of the universe, the one who protects and cares for you, the one who makes sure that you lack nothing. It makes no sense. And what this reminds us of is the irrationality of sin. Sin does not make sense. Sin is a rejection of God. And it honestly, truly, to the core of who we are, if we all think about it in our wisest moments, we know that sin doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because sin is the opposite of what gives us flourishing. Sin is the opposite of what gives joy to us. Sin robs us of joy. It clouds our world. It fills us with shadows. It's not good. Rejecting God makes no sense. Sin makes no sense. And yet Israel doesn't. And people do it all the time. We do it all the time. Scripture says this is a heart problem. The reason it doesn't matter that sin is irrational, the fact that it's irrational doesn't stop us from doing it, right? And that's because this is not a rationality problem. This is a heart problem. This is a matter of the soul. It's not a matter of facts and figures, math and reason, uh, pros versus cons and things like that. Uh, There's no doubt that people give reasons for rejecting God, and Israel certainly has its reasons here. They're not good reasons. But those reasons are guided by the bias of our hearts. And so if our heart leans away from God, then of course we're going to find reasons that we find satisfactory for why we should reject God. Even in this weak moment, though, it isn't too late for them. They could turn back to God. So what does God do? He rehearses all that he's done and this is a crucial practice for us as Christians rehearsing and remembering the faithfulness and the care that God has given to us this is this is a model for us this is a model for our lives um, we see this modeled for us in the Psalms. What do the psalmists do? They're always remembering the good that God has done, remembering all the rescues that he's given to his to his people. So God is just modeling that for us in Scripture. And, and Christian, I want you to remember there are going to be times when you're going to pass through deep waters and you may be tempted to think this is too much. This is too difficult You may be tempted to do what Israel did and compromise with the world, do things their way, take the shorter path, take the easier path. Maybe we're tempted to talk and dress like the world. We're tempted to be worldly in the ways that we spend our money, spend our time, use the gifts that God has given to us. Anything that we can do to avoid sticking out. I want to look like the rest of the world because then they'll leave me alone. And those moments, more than any other, we desperately need to take hold of the deep, deep love of Jesus, right? In the moments when the temptation to lose heart and lose hope becomes so palpable, more than any other, God is pressing you to take the truths you know and make them a part of this experience. When your faith is weak or when you feel weary, rehearse the faithfulness of God, just like God does for his people here, right? He does rebuke Israel. What happens here is a rebuke, but it is a gentle rebuke. And it's a rebuke that's, that's loaded with hope, and it's loaded with promise attached. Second, Saul is revealed. So Samuel calls the people of Israel forward, and they're going to identify the new king by casting lots. Now, why did they use lots? Because Israel understood the process of narrowing down uh, by tribe and by clan, and then by family, and then by family member was a divine process, and we see this in Proverbs sixteen thirty three. The lot is cast in the lab, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, in the past, if, in Israel's past, especially if you think about lots, lots have not been a good thing. Um, they used lots, for instance, to identify Achan. What do they do in the situation of Achan? Achan has sinned and they cast lots and is God used the lots to identify the person who was guilty. And they were used to pour out the wrath of God on the people. Now let me suggest something and I know it isn't, it isn't a pleasant thing here either though. That's what I want you to see. The casting of lots here is not a sweet thing. The casting of lots here is not a pleasant thing. Because this instance of the lots is also an instance of God pouring out his wrath on Israel. And what is his tool for pouring out wrath on Israel? The lots. I want to carefully make my case here that Saul was on purpose chosen as a judgment. Um, You don't want to be the one that's chosen by lots here. Lots are not your friend in this instance. Um, When I was a younger Christian, I I remember hearing sermons about uh, King Saul. And I remember the thing that bothered me the most as as a young Christian was just, how was this this wrong? How is Saul wrong? How is Israel being judged for having a bad king when God's the one that picks the bad king? And at the time, I I guess I just assumed that, that Saul was a fluke. I assumed that I didn't have very good theology, so I just thought, well, maybe God picked Saul, and Saul seemed like the right guy. I mean, he's good-looking, he's, he's tall, he's handsome, he has some early successes here. Uh, maybe, maybe that's what happened. Maybe God just didn't see what was going to happen. I, like I said, I didn't have great theology when I first became a Christian. Um, and, of course, that's not the answer. The answer is not that God didn't see what was going to happen. The answer is not that this all caught God by surprise. The real answer is Saul is God's judgment and Saul is Israel's choice. They picked the kind of man they wanted. What did they want? They wanted a king like the other nations and God gave them what they wanted. But in giving them what they wanted, he doesn't give them the kind of king that he wants. He gives the kind of king that they want. And so what we saw with Achan was, look, this is a way of judging people. And I want you to notice this. The selection of Saul immediately follows Samuel's declaration that they've rejected God as king. Think about this. Think of the order of these events. God tells them, God tells them, you are guilty. And then the very next thing he does is say, let's pick your king. When you look at God's ways with Israel, the typical order is he brings the accusation and then he brings the punishment. And one of the things Bill Arnold points out is that this is exactly the moment when we would expect God to announce his judgment. Right after he accuses them of what they're guilty of, that's the part where he says, you're guilty, now here's your judgment. And in this instance, he says, you're guilty, here's your king. It's kind of an odd judgment, you know, it's... It's the judgment they want, so it doesn't feel like a punishment. When I was a kid, I remember we had a grocery store in Stafford, Kansas, and I mentioned Stafford, Kansas this morning, got to do it again tonight. You just keep it going. But we used to have this grocery store in Kansas, and in Stafford, and it was called Paul's Grocery Store. And Paul's Grocery Store was the place you went for everything because it was a tiny town, 20 miles from civilization. And so, you know, you paid five, gallons of, $5 a gallon for milk and, you know, $5 a box of cereal, and you paid it because you didn't want to drive to town for it. And I remember when I was a kid, I remember stealing candy. I don't remember what I stole. I think it might have been just a sucker. Uh, I felt terribly guilty about it, but little did I know it was only like five cents, but it was still stealing. And I don't even remember if I got caught. But imagine how strange it would be if my parents saw me steal and they intentionally gave it to me anyway. Here, have your sucker. Have your candy. Have this thing that you took. What a very strange judgment. What what very strange parents I would have if they did that to me. And yet getting what you want is sometimes its own kind of judgment. We saw that in Deuteronomy tonight. In our reading tonight in Deuteronomy, what does God do? He punishes idolatry with more idolatry. He gives us what we want. What is the the theme that we see in Romans chapter 1? He gives them up to the iniquity of their own hearts. He gives them up to the thing that they want most. God gives us what we want as punishment. This judgment looks like what they want. He gives them what they ask for moments after he tells them they are guilty of rejecting him. Now, I hope maybe you see this. I hope you see this. This is important to me. We will never know all the misery that God protected us from by refusing to give us the worst desires of our hearts. We will never know all the misery that God protected us from by refusing to give us the worst desires. Of our hearts, Have you prayed for things? You've asked for things. They were the strongest desire of your heart at the moment. They were the thing you wanted more than anything else in the entire world. And God didn't give it to you. You will never know how many times God was protecting you from something that was going to become an idol. Or when he was chastening you and you needed it very badly. Imagine that you are living in terrible sin... And God gives you the thing that you want most in that moment. What is he teaching you? He's reinforcing the exact opposite of what you need to learn in that moment. Occasionally, God does give us what we want. And he does let us suffer from it as well. And he does that here with Israel. He gives them what they want. Now, there's an interesting moment here. Um, I don't have time to go in depth with it. But it is that moment when Saul is actually chosen. Uh, he apparently hides among the baggage, um, and which is just interesting to think about. I kind of imagine him just sort of covered by all these bags, and he's just hiding out in there. Um, uh, commentators have two schools of thought here. On the one hand, some say this is humility, right? He's, he's hiding because he's just a humble man, and he's, he's not pursuing the kingship. He's not, he doesn't want to push his way into this, and that's certainly one way of thinking about it. But then others have said that Saul is hiding because he's a coward. In fact, I tend to see Saul as fearful and and not a humble person. Think about the situation. It's really kind of hard not to laugh. It's sort of pathetic almost. You sort of can see the picture. You know, they say, all right, the new king is Saul. And then nobody sees him. He's just missing And the prophet has to ask God where Saul is at. And God says, he's hiding in the bags. And then they say, Saul, get out of the bags. And you can just see Saul, Saul, this big tall guy, just kind of stand up. And there's these bags all around him. And he just looks ridiculous. And then in that moment, what does Samuel say? Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's nobody else like him in all Israel. And you almost wonder if Samuel believes it or not. You can just imagine the people going, oh boy, what did we just get ourselves into here? But in either case, maybe he's humble. Maybe he's a coward. But in either case, the judgment of God is the selection of this man. They wanted a king like all the nations. And now they're going to get a king like all the nations. Third tonight, the law is upheld. After Samuel is... Selected to be king, Samuel does something very important. And we see this in verse 35. It says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to know which scripture passage this is. I think it's been good that we've been reading through Deuteronomy ourselves, and so we had a chance in the not too distant past to read Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 is where we find these rules for the king. And among those rules were rules like this. He shouldn't accumulate lots of wealth. He shouldn't accumulate wives. He shouldn't lead them back to Egypt. He should write his own copy of the law, and he needs to read it for himself. So the constant command of God is that the king is supposed to love God's law. He's supposed to write God's law for himself. He's supposed to read it for himself. He's supposed to cling to its truths. And if he did that, he would have been a king who was very much unlike the other nations. Now, here's the important thing to note. Saul doesn't live up to Deuteronomy 17. By the end of his rule, he's a self-absorbed, paranoid ruler. Uh, we know that he isn't faithful to his wife, Ahinoam, because in 2 Samuel 12:8, God says that he had more than one wife. We know he had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. So by the end of Saul's rule, the standards of Deuteronomy 17 lay in tatters. And the threats that Samuel points out in chapter 8 have come true. This is the kind of king you got, the exact king that God warned you about. Two things are true here Saul is chosen and anointed by God, and Saul is a judgment on his own people. Rulers are not always intended by God to be a blessing, sometimes they are a judgment. Romans 13 talks about the reality that all rulers are appointed by God. All rulers are put in place by God. And it does tell us that. But it says that a ruler is ordained by God. And not necessarily that that is an endorsement of their heart, of their soul, or of their their acts. Think of this. The worst kings in history were ordained by God and they were truly awful. Caligula, a truly terrible emperor, ordained and put in place by God according to Romans 13. Think of this, Hitler, according to Romans 13, he was ordained and placed there by God. Was he a blessing to the people? He was a curse. See, God ordains wicked kings and he ordains wicked rulers just as he ordains righteous kings and righteous rulers. God's ordination of a king, God's ordination and choice of a ruler is not necessarily an endorsement or a blank check for their behavior. Uh, John Knox, the forefather of Presbyterianism, said it like this. He said, True, it is. God has commanded kings to be obeyed. But likewise, true it is that in things which they commit against his glory, he has commanded no obedience, but rather he has approved, yea, and greatly rewarded such as have opposed themselves to their ungodly commandments and blind rage. The ordination of God isn't always a blessing, it's often a curse. The ordination of God is not a blanket approval of anything or everything that a king or a president or any other ruler does. In fact, it is not a blank check for rulers to act however they want. Simply being chosen or being in a position of authority does not allow those in authority to do whatever they want. These are people badly in need of hope. And in their hopelessness, they turned to an answer they didn't truly understand, I think. But in doing so, they turned away from God. And they experienced his judgment. And that judgment looks like a man. And his name is Saul. Gerhardus Voss says that the essence of what it means to be a Christian is to be a person of hope. He says that hope is living by the things that are not. As though they already are. Hope, says Voss, is, is making the future the center of gravity in our own consciousness. It means being people who are forward thinking and who look to what's ahead. Living with that as the orienting feature of our life. In other words, to be a Christian is to be someone who lives with hope in his heart and his eye on the good things that are coming. That's what hope is. In the book of Ephesians, Paul describes people without Christ. And do you know the term that he uses to describe people who are without Christ? He says they are having no hope and without God in the world. So he ties together having God and having hope. And why does he do that? He does that because to have God is to have real hope. To be alienated from God is to have no hope and no source of hope and no reason for hope. Without putting this way, I think tonight Israel thinks it can have hope without God. And that's what tonight's passage is the beginning of. They think they can have a king like all the nations, and they think they can still have all of God's benefits. They they think that they can live like the world, and they think that they can still have some reason to rejoice like the saints. And like with so many microwave solutions that we settle for, there will be early success. There will be early battles won. After all, eating a piece of of pizza at 10 o'clock at night in the short term feels good. But the rest of 1 Samuel is going to be God's lesson that life, the world's way, will foster hopelessness. It won't foster hopefulness. And so here's my encouragement. Look around yourself, look at the world we live in. I can't think of a better descriptor of the times we live in than this. People who desperately want hope without the hope giver. People who desperately want hope without the hope giver. Christmas without Christ. Goodness without virtue. Um, as C. S. Lewis says, men without chests. Irrational, positive thinking without a reason for it. Here's what God wants for Israel, and it's what He wants for us tonight deep hope. Not inspirational speech hope, not world quick fix, worldly fix, quick fix hope. He wants us to be, he wants us to be in him. He wants us to trust in him. He wants us to repent and follow him. He wants us to make him the center of our world. He wants this for Israel. He wants it for you. Because that's where the deep hope is. Deep hope is the sort of thing that can't be easily ripped out by the roots when the wind blows. The wind will blow, by the way. But real hope survives because it's rooted in God. It's true, and it's enduring, and it doesn't depend on the passing moment, and it doesn't depend on our feelings to be valid. It's, it endures in hurricanes. It endures in personal disasters. It stays even when everything else in our life collapses. And it endures not because we are strong, and not because we are great, and not because we have a good, strong grip. The hope that God gives endures because it's built on the foundation of God and who he is and what he has done and what he will keep doing. Let's pray. You are the God of all comfort. You are full of life and joy, O God, and have every good thing that we need within yourself. Forgive us for looking elsewhere. Forgive us for thinking we could find refreshment apart from you. Forgive us for believing that there is anything we need more than you. Help us as your people to find our all in all through Jesus Christ alone. Remembering that you don't give us shallow hope, but you give us the deepest, greatest, most lasting hope that is possible. Protect us, therefore, from thinking that we can find what we need apart from you. Become our portion and our strength, O God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.